This is the Convergent Science Network podcast. All right, we're running. Leading researchers in the domain of neuroscience, brain theory and technology are interviewed by Paul Verschur and Tony Prescott. This is Paul Verschur for the Convergent Science Network podcast, together with my colleague uh, Tony Prescott. And we're here at our BCBT Summer School of 2015 with uh, Renulfo Romo. Renulfo, you came here um, from Mexico to share with us your your incredible work and also this long tradition of work that you've been engaged in on understanding decision-making in the brain. So what's so special about decision-making? I think decision-making is the, the crown of brain function because sooner or later you have to make a decision, whether it's conscious or whether it's unconscious. Habits, I think, for example, require decision-making. They probably are below our consciousness. When, when I walk in some way, I have a, um, an apparatus in my spinal cord together in concert with the, my brain allows me to move. I don't have to be very conscious. But from time to time, I'm conscious of what, where I'm going, in what direction, where, where my steps are, etc., etc. So, But there are decisions. I think we are talking about decision-making in, in the way in which we can think about. For example, if my girlfriend asks me to marry, I can reflexively say yes. I can say, listen, why don't we talk in a week? Or, for example, in a month, I have a friend that have delayed the decision for eight years. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but now you you have actually looked at this this problem of decision making um, with respect to marriage in a in a much more ex- compressed way, in a much more controlled way. You you reduce it down to somatosensory decision making, right? Where you really have to let's say combine signals from different modalities and sort of extract a meaning from them relative to your goals and then act accordingly. Okay, so um, so why why did you choose somatosensory decision-making? For various reasons. The first one is, is, was, is because I was trained in a very long tradition coming from uh, Philip Barr at Johns Hopkins and in the 1920s of the past century, and then continued by Vernon Mountcastle. And third, because, uh, believe me or not, but uh, the reward signals were discovered using somatosensory signals in Freiburg with Wolfram Schulz. And then, um, um, trying to think about, I discovered that behind this, there was a fundamental problem, at least for me in that time when I was young with Vernon Mountcastle, the representational problem. One question is how the brain represents, brain cells represent sensory inputs, no matter what is the sensory modality. Somehow, you have to generate a, um, a neural copy of the external world. You don't feel with your fingertips, you don't see with your eyes, you don't hear with your ear. You, you, you do all these um, sensory functions with your brain. And the question is, well, how does the brain manage to uh, generate a representation of the external world? Just to begin, uh, uh, as a prelude to decision-making, perceptual decision-making. So then, the question is, once you s- start to generate sensory representations, you are trying your network in such a way you generate experience. And why you generate that? You treat sensory inputs in a different way as if you were a naive organism. Once you have that, you have to think about what is experience, which is memory, whatever you can label it, whether long-term or short-term memory. So the question is, how do we store sensory input information in our brain that makes what we are? So that's one of my general questions. So at the end, we want to understand how these um, big um, problems 
sensory representations and internal representation combined together to generate perceptual decision making. But you can have only perception decisions alone with little experience if you were a very low organism animal, or you can make, in your case, you use your internal experience in order to make decisions. You don't need sensory input sometimes. Mm-hmm. But now when I, uh, I might move my eyes, right, so I have a differential response to stimuli in the world, I might push a button or I might decide to get married eight years from now. So these are all forms of decision. So do you think that decisions in that sense are hierarchically structured or are they really uh, situated at a specific level in, let's say, a hierarchy of perceptual cognitive operations? If you are an eclectic man, you have to think that it happens all around this. It can be an hierarchical processing, different situation, And I think what uh, is important in our brain functioning is that we depend a lot on context. So our brain adapts to the context every time, context situations in such a way that one decision at this moment can be, even if it's it's exactly the same, the same operation in another context, it's, it's it's what's going on. We are context-dependent. Mm-hmm. We are no more than that, I think. But then, so so if we, if we put it so so broadly, um, so now it's decision making is very much helping us to transform, let's say, sensory states into an action in the service of our goals. So what we have to bring together is sensory states, our motivations and goals, and our action repertoire in the end, to produce this one output that will drive our skeletal muscle system. And given that we only have one skeletal muscle system, it better be one action. Okay? So, so there's this funnel we have to go through to, to get sensory states into action. And this funnel is modulated by different things, goals, memory, action. Yes. Right? But now, at the beginning of this funnel uh, stands a sensory process. And there, what I found interesting, in some sense, you take a very extreme perspective, in my opinion, (laughs) on sensory processing is really insisting that a primary sensory area is really primary in the sense that it is uniquely dedicated to the modality that the thalamus dictates to it. So you really believe that to be the case? I do believe. Uh And and, uh, it's not that I believe. I think, because it depends on hypothesis and results, and interpretation and challenging that hypothesis. In fact, I cannot say that they have lost more than 10 years doing experiments in order to, not to convince myself, because no matter what is the result, it's fine to me. For example, one in one stream, many colleagues say that early sensory cortices, the earliest stage of processing in our cerebral cortex is multimodal. In the other extreme, uh, which is almost a dogma, is that early sensory cortex are unimodal. They are, have only one capacity to process only one modality. Just, let's say, visual cortex is visual cortex because it does receive a, an input coming from the retina going through the thalamus, and the thalamus dictates that territory to be, be, to be visual. And for the auditory cortex, exactly the same, and for the somatosensory. But... There, in science, it's very important to insist and to challenge dogmas, even if we lose time, in the sense that we lose money, we invest many hours in something that does not produce something positive, a positive result. It might be a negative one, but it's very important in order to allow hypothesis or interpretation or something, a fact, that is true or not true. So, in fact, over the last 10 years, I've been insisting and trying to document whether unimodal, whether multimodal, at the moment it wins unimodal. So what was the key piece of data that convinced you that it was unimodal? I'm relying in a very, very simple uh, signal that I think come from the Cajal tradition, the neural doctrine in the sense that neurons, that the brain is made of pieces 
of individual neurons that are connected together by um, a tiny space called synapses, and that all the territories of our brain, at least for the sensory and perceptual territories, are dictated by our sensory lamina. Let's say, for example, somatosensory cortex is, is somatosensory because it is connected to the, our receptors in our skin, our body, in such a way that our brain makes a map of our body surface. And in and the visual cortex is visual because it is very related to the retina in such a way that the retina can be mapped out in, in that part of the cerebral cortex. And the same for the, for the uh, auditory cortex. So, in the uh, beginning, in the mid-19th century, there was a big effort by uh, physicists in Germany, Helmholtz, something that started to set out the basis of the action potential, that there was a transmission of signal from the skin up to the brain. And they were able, at the, in the beginning of the in, uh, 1920s or something like that, the English school, to discover the, the basis of the transmission that the, that the signal that uses our brain is, is, is signal, signals. And Cajal had already settled out the neural doctrine. So I'm using a very tiny signal from this old tradition in order to map out a the responsive properties of brain cells. Not only responsive properties, but all, once the stimulus is gone, something our brain is working at this moment, and, and in fact, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about, is internally generated by my brain. You, you're, you're looking at the S1 cortex particularly, um, and there are other somatosensory areas. Um, that uh, Have you looked into those too to see whether there would be multimodal cells there, because there are other projections, certainly I would know in the rat, uh, where, where the, the sensory input comes in from the periphery, but may mix in, in primarily sensory areas, uh, perhaps more cross-modally. It was clear to me um, for about 30 years when I was working with Wolfram Schulz, a very dear colleague, that in order to understand the um, function in our brain, we have to go across cortical areas. So um, when I started to work out in Mexico City, I decided to use exactly the same input and see the transformation across the system, which is something very important. It's like, for example, if I tell you something you interpret it, and then you tell something to Paul, not in front of me, and then Paul tells to some others, and something like that. It's like I'm passing to you directly the information, and then you treat this information in a different way and pass that information to Paul. But Paul never spoke to me. So it's more or less what's going on in the brain. It's a metaphor that is like, uh, in Spanish, we said uh, chismoso, is not liar, but uh, the what Paul interprets from me is through you. It's what I'm trying to do myself across the brain, trying to understand what kind of representation receives a very downstream area outside the sensory um, representation, for example, something like that. So. I think that's the major contribution of my work, going in this direction, in which it tries to see what's going on across the brain. Because I think, at the end, what Paul says is the true representation for Paul. And what you say, your true representation, and not necessarily exactly the same, and share with myself too. And they. Uh, so I, I understand you're trying to do a very pure experiment. You're going to try to simplify it as much as you can to get at this basic process of decision-making. But the criticism that I guess people can make, and you already responded yes. in your lecture, is that, that this isn't what happens in daily life. 
So one, one exa- much of the time we're, we're the stimuli coming from multimodalities are, yes. are telling us similar information and, and pays greatly to, to pay attention to them together. Uh, and also, even in the touch system, which you're, which you're describing, most of the time we are actively controlling uh, the way that, for instance, the fingertip is moving on a surface. And that's going to have a huge impact on how we process that signal upstream. So when you when you're in your experiment, you essentially stimulate a passive, the, the fingertip is a p- passive receptor surface. Perhaps you're missing something about what was more common for the for the that sensory system to be doing, which is to be actively controlled in finding useful information. So the information is being given here. There's no sense that I have to yes. look it out. Well, you're right and you're not right, as <laughs> always. First, yes, I'm dealing with, uh, basically, with the touch system and use it as a model of um, processing. Because the general question is how a sensory representation, unimodal as you like, is transformed up to pole or something like that and produce a function, which is a very complex issue. The second issue is, and you raise, which is very good, is that is a criticism, it's very welcome, it's a passively delivered stimulus. And normally, for example, I am squeezing my fingers across the surface in order to get information. But that's the way science uh, works. We would like to have an experiment in natural condition, but this is almost impossible because it's, it's very difficult to control or variables, and you can dribbling wrongly in, in some direction because there are many cues, many, many things that must um, um, uh, take you in a very different direction. And myself, I had decided to control as much as I can where I deliver the stimulus. Exactly the same as the people work in the visual system. What people in the visual system do is very simple. Normally, we are moving the eyes, but we have to bring the fovea in a given moment to deliver the stimulus. Otherwise, it can be in different ways. And make sense of sensory processing, visual processing will be very difficult. So that is a, a decision that I made because I made it. Of course, I can be wrong, but it provides some pieces of evidences. Of course, it's not telling to you how the sensory motor loop works. I do not pretend it. I do not pretend even to 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 show intentionality from the active point of view. Because if I want by wish, which I do not know what is a wish. For example, my desire to do something from where does it come? I do not know. But eventually, if you know, you can move your hand, you can move your finger, you can walk, you can think about or something like that, and then use your senses actively. So in my case, I do not pretend to do that. I can to do in the uh, opposite way. Just simply want to see in a very, in Spanish, which is castiza way, how a sensory input is is represented by brain cells and and bring a big network of our brain to thinking and deciding and using, if you like, the motor apparatus afterward. In other words, I am very interested to know how is what is uh, behind a decision report. So now let's say. So let's say we convince Tony, okay, and, <laughs> and the sensory stimulus is sort of ecologically valid, and even we can we can discuss details of that later. Then, the the real decision making doesn't take place at that stage. The real no. decision making takes care takes place in areas that are sort of in frontal areas of of the of the neocortex. Um, so what kind of network now gets engaged? So here I have my two stimuli. They might be uh, frequency modulated in some way. My primary visual somatosensory areas are responding. They're now transducing this stimulus to a prefrontal network that's going to make the decision. So what's happening there? What's going to happen? In, this is a very important question because at the end, um, thinking early in the morning when I am alone in the dark, my dark room, or I close 
And the other day I was thinking about what, what is the point of this? Uh, of course, I many years ago discovered that I, I was not a somatosensory man. As the people say, I'm a visual man. I'm not visual. I'm, I'm using a model to understand something. So at the end, if you, I can simplify my, my thinking about this. For example, your organism, we, and animals, even lower, the lower animal, you need to map out something which is happening in the external world, transform energies in something. And the, and the current money to transmit something is the action potential, electrical signals. But there had to be receptive areas. Even if in the lower levels, that very quickly do, uh, take these signals and then do a response. Those are very fast systems. Even the, the sensory ones that go up to the cerebral cortex in ourselves. So that takes... 25 milliseconds in the somatosensory system. And if you think about the spinal cord, it's 10, minutes, 10 milliseconds. That's exactly what's happening at war. But fast, and then fast responses from the motor side, you have to do. But in our cases, it can be, it can, you can treat these signals and store it in some way. Those are slow systems. The working memory ones, for example, allow you to think about. And so there, there, those are very slow systems that depend on some other kind of transmissions, molecules, differently to the ones associated to sensory and motor output systems. And there are the dopamine system, cholinergic, noradrenergic, serotonergic, or something like that. Special, not special cells, but are localized in such a way that can add some, something to this fast transmission and more or less slow transmission. So at the end, you have a trio there. Fast sensory input, fast motor output, and something in between. And you can put many things, memory, motivation, decision-making, subjectivity, and something like that. And what? And, and when something is a mess out of this, then you have frustration, you have psychiatric problems, memory problems, etc., etc. But yeah, I can uh, put in troubles if I cut the sensory input. The, the, the rest doesn't work. If I cut the motor output, too. So there is something in between, extremely important, and that's the one I want to understand myself. But now, do you see this as? one monolithic system that always converges onto then the same decision, um, evaluating the same information, or do you see this as, as competing subsystems? Absolutely, I think. For example, if I, were a, if I were a Martian, if I go and see Paul lying in the bed, if I were a um, neurologist, I would say it has it's a motor problem. But eventually, you are... Uh, in depression. You don't want to move. I call you Paul. Paul, good morning. And you don't move. And I can say, well, it's a sensory deficit. Mm -hmm. Or secondly, you don't move. It's a motor deficit. But simple, you are out. You don't want to hear. You don't want to move. Mm -hmm. Those are the systems we are in troubles in between. A Parkinsonian, a Parkinsonian person, for example, um, I'm sorry if I use this, but if Miss Universe crosses in the, the field, it doesn't move. It doesn't, it doesn't care. Uh, something, because mm -hmm. it doesn't care. You know, probably the sensory input is there, but there is no more motivation. There is no, there is nothing. It's, it's an empty brain. Mm -hmm. So, but then, so 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 now we we have the decision-making system, or however we want to call it, because maybe this is now more than just a decision-making system, right? We have a perceptual system with the motor system, and then there's the the something in between. We're going to call that the decision-making system, or we're going to give it a different name? No, I think it's just uh, um, whatever you you do in life is always decision-making. Mm -hmm. But 
decision-making needs to be expressed through a voluntary action. It's not a reflex. So, for example, you do not move. You can think about. You can even, we have a paper called postpone decision. For example, when you go to the, a bar or a restaurant and the waiter comes to you, give the menu, and you say, I don't know whether to take this or that. Then comes the waiter in a minute, say, have you decided? Oh, give me a minute, normally we say. And then, finally, you are under pressure and come the way, have you decided? And you decide. And then when the waiter goes, you say, oh, why did I decide this? You know, so decision-making is something like that. When you are allowed to make a, pos- a postponed decision, which is always I do myself, and it's called procrastination, mm-hmm. which is... Um, um, a true mental problem that I have myself. For example, I do receive an email, and I know what is my decision, but I postpone it for, mm-hmm. I will do it tomorrow. And when tomorrow comes, I say, I will do it tomorrow. <laughs> and at the end, I say to myself, what's going on with me? I have to make a decision. My decision was made before. I don't know what that. Mm-hmm. There is a colleague in Israel who is doing a modeling about this. It's a fantastic work. And I think there are some mental diseases which are not taken by certain in the, so- in the society, but it's just, I have that problem myself, mm-hmm. is procrastination, mm-hmm. no, no doubt that. Right. And as we do have many memory problems, which are perfectly adaptable to what people can think is normal, but it's not normal mm-hmm. if you make a simple test. Right. So... Well, I'm quite a specialist myself in procrastination, so you're not alone, I can, I can assure you. But now, so, so, okay, we have the sensory signals, they are sort of, uh, we, have, we have strongly stimulus-locked responses in our sensory areas, they converge um, over, over a number of steps into a premotor area like PMC, you, you, pointed, you pointed to a number of areas. Yes. So, is, the, is this information reaching that area simultaneously? Is there any kind of coordination across these signals? Let's say primary, primary uh, somatosensory area is just in distance closer to uh, uh, frontal areas, PMC, as might be a visual signal. So do these areas care at all about latency matching of these, these areas that project to them? Of course. For example, the sensory input which you can quantify in the stimulus parameters there, takes about 25 milliseconds, the beginning. And you can have a very faithful representation of at least for this stimulus. When you go to the uh, frontal lobe areas that treat the stimulus in, in a different way, but this is, uh, you can directly decode the information there. It's about 180 milliseconds. So there is a, a time, a delay time between that sensor representation and what you see there. Of course, if you fill the gap between the two, you can find out some areas, 60 milliseconds, 100 milliseconds or something, which is a time, and I don't know why, why is not directly, for example, from the skin to the MPC, to the frontal lobe? It needs to be treated. And that reminds me Benjamin Leavitt, who was very much engaged in trying to understand the time it takes to make conscious something, a sensory input, for example. He always referred about 500 milliseconds in men. But uh, it... His techniques were not perfect at the time. It probably is about 200 milliseconds. Mm-hmm. No matter what is the sensory input I have, spoken with people working in the auditory system, in decision-making, in the visual system, somatosensory system in my case, it takes about a signal which is consistent with the period in which you make the decision, which is about 180, 200 milliseconds. Mm-hmm. But that's, in Libet's case, he's talking about the conscious awareness of the decision. So d- you believe that for the monkey, it's, it's a comparable kind of process. 
There may be some differences in the timing. Sure, but qualitatively, it would play out in the same way that we would have. I do think so. Okay. Yes. Right. Of so, course. So, so, so now we have. So, so European the decision making we're talking about, just to sort of finish up the, the, the Libet um, aspect, also decision making is always engaging conscious awareness. Not necessarily. Okay. For example, when you drive your car, you make um, you may be aware once you make the decision. You know, but in other cases, if you give me time, which not only not always possible because you have it depends. It's a very adaptable mm-hmm. operation. It depends of the time constraints and what uh, beneficial is to make a decision whether you need to think about or whether you have to make a decision. Not in a very reflexive way, because you have brain circuits that allows you to think about um, below your conscious awareness. Sometimes you do, you are conscious on that, and then you say, why did I do that? Mm -hmm. Oh, I did quite well. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Your, Your experiment is a little bit unusual in that respect, because you have something which is highly practiced, but at the same time is always intrinsically unpredictable because you don't know what the next stimulus is going to be, but you know it's going to be one of two things. So uh, now you have something there, I guess you would say, you cannot uh, use a habit system because you always have to make a choice. Yes. Uh, and therefore it would come into consciousness. It was made by purpose yeah. from the beginning. I thought a lot about this because... I was trained by a very um, incredible man, Vernon Mountcastle, who laid down many of the ideas we use right now, uh, believe me or not. And when I was working with him, in some way we treated this problem, and I discovered that he was doing, at least from my perspective, in a wrong way. Of course, he had, I, I thought about him, had no flexibility because he was older than me, I was eager. So everything was left. And then when I went back to Mexico, I say, why did it not work? And I discovered why. So I made my purpose, in which in a very artificial way, I could recreate the different steps, you know, one without being contaminated by the next one, but being sure that to pass from one to two, has, you have to go through this step. Otherwise, you will be wrong at the end with simply guessing. So it's, it's very, if you like, it's artificial. But everything is artificial, even CERN in Geneva, in order to, to <laughs> prove the molecule, God molecule. Oh, yeah. So it's, it's made by purpose. But I had to make clear that you had to have both inputs a central input, an output, and then be combined. And I had to be able to look at both, not in a very uh, different way. Just simple, had to capacity with the very simple statistical stacks, the, the technique coming from engineering and physics just to the code and have them both in, in my hands. So it's, it's, it's a very peculiar uh, way of doing science, a very simple way, is pedestrian, frankly. But now, so what you, what you found is that neurons in, in MPC, if I'm, um, you, you looked at how these neurons respond to the task properties. Now, in this case, we have these frequency-modulated visual or uh, tactile stimulation. And now, dependent on the frequency uh, and the difference, like before the waiting period and after the, the waiting period, the monkey has to choose for one, dis- one action or the other. So what you show, however, is in this waiting period of up to three seconds, something very peculiar happens, and that it looks like the, the response of these neurons s- sort of also at the offset of the first uh, stimulus pair, they slowly ramp up their activity, or actually it might vary, but still reflecting the key feature that should inform this decision, which is frequency. Okay. Yes. So 
But why would it be a ramping activity? Why don't you, why don't you just latch on to a certain representation of that frequency and just keep it there? What's the ramping all about? Let me say something that somebody today asked me about, he was posing to me a philosophical question. I admire Democritus, mm -hmm. but recently I discovered uh, Epicurus. Epicurus is precedes Democritus in the ideas that there has to be a representation of something in, in the brain. Um, Democritus was talking about uh, molecules, atoms, that um, everything in our external world was made by atoms mm. that entered through our eyes, our ear, our fingers, and these atoms move up to the brain. He said that, and in the brain, these molecules gather together and give a... And I saw in, the, in the case of the form, an object, they generate the form. And that that representation was important for learning, memory, voluntary action, and decision-making. Democritus said that 200 and 300 years ago, 2,300 years ago. So, if you like, um, I'm in a continuator of Democritus. Mm -hmm. So, if you like... The atoms are the action potential right now in the modern view. And uh, those action potentials are how cells generate electrical signals, tiny electric. Mm -hmm. If you put together, you can generate um, um, the form of an image. In fact, Otto Kreufel used this um, idea to study the form of visual inputs in the visual cortex in the cat. Mm -hmm. uh, myself, I've using a more simple stimulus, vibration in the fingers, and you can see the. Uh, it's not the isomorphic. This is isometric representation. So I wanted to to have something that I can see directly from from the spikes, and and the idea is to me the acid test was what is left when the stimulus is gone. Mm -hmm. Right. And uh, I want you to find out that. Mm. And uh, with very simple statistical methods, we see that the stimulus parameter is there. Of course, neurons are like humans, have different ways of representing, but at the end, it's exactly the same neural code, mm -hmm. a parametric code in different times. And I want to believe that neurons, thousands of neurons, millions of neurons, gather effort mm -hmm. in order to represent something. And this is what it's shown. Sorry, so what is Epicurus that's different from Democritus? No, it's the way, no, Epicurus added something. Democritus was more uh, from the physical size, side, like um, a rationalistic person would think right now. As, for example, very often the students say, what do you think as this, is, this paper, I always say? Well, this paper is not very good because very qualitative. And I always tell them, listen, if somebody is able to show qualitative properties of something, it's because he solved everything. Because they always criticize. It's not very quantitative. So what the Epicurus added is precisely the other, the quality, he thought about that. For what for is that? For example, many years when I discovered that isometric representation of the stimulus, I wanted to know whether it served for something, whether it was an, an artifact. So I did the reverse experiment. I activated artificially brain cells. And what happens that the monkey or the subject had the capacity to generate um, something which is very consistent with what I observed with the natural stimuli. So there was a very causal confirmation that that representation was useful for decision-making. But now the, um, so the, we have this slowly ramping activity, and the, for you the key point here is that what these neurons do is sort of they throw away information that really doesn't matter for the decision-making and they conserve the inf information that is sort of modality independent and relevant, which in this case is the frequency of the modulation, yes. right? So 
how does that process play out? Because so here we have two, uh, we have an auditory and, an, and a tactile stimulus. They might have a different kind of frequency response, right? Converging on, on any of these frontal areas. And now during the, what you show, which is interesting, is that during the, the wait period where, where the stimulus is gone, this, the system, these frontal areas that you investigated are still modulating that signal in some ways. That only this sort of frequency-specific response starts to emerge, most, is, is most pronounced towards the end of the waiting period, just before the decision is made. So how is that, how do you see this incremental sharpening of the task-relevant information in the response? Um, this is science. We have no um, an answer for everything, but it's a fact that happens there. And once you have it, then you can think about The first thing which is, strikes me is that this is the way that happens in the brain. Secondly, I'm very impressed that uh, for that cells in a very downstream area, far away from the sensor representation, um, um, do that have that neural code in, in that moment. And so, it's, it's, so it's, it might tell you something fundamental of, all about that. Mm -hmm. So uh, the question is here, is that you are thinking about on the representation on a stimulus parameter for different modalities in the same way. It's an abstract, it's a supramodal, a model if you like, mm -hmm. some, but it's there. Mm -hmm. What is strike the most to me? So we can think right now in models, in one stream trying to model and implement model and, and think about and do experiments in order to find out the biophysical basis and the architecture, neural architecture, which is there. No doubt that is, is, and makes this. To me, the most uh, important contribution of this, I'm trying to think mm -hmm. that my work uh, has something <laughs> <laughs> worth in life, is that uh, uh, I think we were the first to show um, in the tactile modality um, a way our brain cells story, represent information during working memory. Because in the case of my colleague, Goldman Rakish, it was always contaminated by eye movements. And, uh, uh, but this, it's a very, physi the physical space, if we want to think, is there, is there. But in our cases, something learned, is something, uh, play cells are there. But the monkeys don't have to think about vibrotactile. Why? Or uh, by uh, acoustic repetition. It's exactly the same. Mm -hmm. When you go, you study medicine, your brain is not made to, to do medicine or engineering. You have to be trained. So this is something forged by experience, mm -hmm. which means that your brain circuits can be uh, modified by experience, can store information experience, and can use it for the best or for the worst. That's, to me, the contribution. But now, in, in your analysis, you looked at these cells as being either unimodal, so we look at PMC, right, the frontal area, you looked at whether these neurons were tuned unimodal or bimodal, right? And then what we see is that over the three seconds, initially, actually, they're not that strongly committed to anything. And in the end, we see a very strong, what you call bimodal response. However, would it not be then more appropriate, actually, as you said earlier, to call it amodal? Yes. Because what they care about is just that bit, let's say, they care about the semantics of the task. The frequency is yes. telling you something important. Yes. Forget the rest. Would you, would you be happy with that interpretation? Absolutely. Okay, good. In fact, I, I, had a, I spent a lot of time thinking about this. To me, it was the most simple paper in my life to report. But when I started to write... I was confronting um, literature that th th there was nothing, or the people used to say they had already discovered, but how to say that? How to confront the community to tell them there is nothing? And how to say I'm a pioneer real in this? So at the end, I have to think about and be very polite 
and sometimes say supramodal, and sometimes a modal, sometimes bimodal. Mm-hmm. But at the end, what happens? Uh, we discover very few cells unimodal, and I think it's an, a statistical issue. Um, and the network is basically more than 85, ni- almost 90% bimodal. And uh, I've been thinking, you don't have to think about uh, uh, and the brain doesn't care when once there are circuits that treat the stimulus parameter, but, but at the end is the goal, is to treat something. What is fundamental here is the frequency, and the cells don't care whether it's acoustic, whether mm-hmm. it's tactile, or right. whether it's visual. I think it's, it's very, very physiological, very natural. This. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, but uh, uh, Tony, go ahead. Are, are you able to show that these neurons are getting their input directly from the unimodal cells and that that's that they are that they're integrating or is, could there be some other site of integration that's perhaps a, a m- viewed more as a sensory area so that the integration happens sooner or elsewhere and you haven't seen that yet these cells are very far away from the sensory input where you see the stimulus parameter there are many areas in between and you can see the a gradual contribution of these areas. In this, what I show, I simply wanted to contrast right. input and, uh, and uh, what you get there. But in between, it's already done the experiments. I can tell you there is a gradual transformation. For example, uh, circuits, neurons from circuits, which are in between this area and the sensory input, that uh, treat the most the responses during, during the sensory input in, in the two ways, opposite way. They share correlated noise, which is share uh, something, a uh, common thing, a synaptic input, something like that. Right. And then uh, populations of neurons, we are only in the early components, some others which are more delayed, uh, some once we respond the most during the second one, which is the right moment in which have to combine two different modalities. For example, the first is acoustic that has to be a storing working memory and the second is tactile. Somehow, there have to be some gears in your brain that shift gears in a very efficient way in order to compare, to treat in the same way to this different sensory input coming for different represent, representation in your brain. Right. So that requires uh, tremendous, it's very simple, but to uh, analytically, statistically to prove uh, modeling is another issue. Mm-hmm. So the, the, there's several steps on yes. the path to the premotor cortex. But what about signals coming back? Are there signals from... Uh, PMC, which could be modulating the primary sensory areas. Yeah, we, we haven't discovered that, but uh, I was surprised in another experiment in 2005 that we, no, no, that was 2002, that reported in, in Nature, in which we discovered decision-making in, in downstream area immediately after S1 sensory, primary sensory, somatosensory cortex. This is called secondary somatosensory cortex. So everybody would expect that this area is very somatosensory. But we discovered that it was associated to decision-making. They have also working memory cells and combine the, this, the working plus the sensory input. So when I got the beginning of the decision-making process, it happens that it was delayed with respect to the medial premotor cortex. It's like it's the frontal lobe, send back a copy, listen. Are you, do you agree that I made the right decision? So the beginning of the decision signal was in the MPC, and then a secondary somatosensor. I had thought in the opposite way. The secondary, because it was very close to the sensor, had to be the beginner. No. So that showed that there has to be a feedback projection which nobody knows. Mm-hmm. Okay. But now, so the data on which we base, base this interpretation is sort of the number of neurons that are responsive in the waiting period to either um, 
unimodal or a bimodal aspect of the stimulus. So I guess you, you revealed that by probe trials, right? That where, you, where there's, there's no specific reward to be gotten by the animal, but we just present either one, the tactile stimulus or the auditory stimulus, and we see which neuron responds or not. How do you exactly get, how can you tell me, how, how can we figure out how many neurons are responsive to a certain modality in this time middle? Because we have to threshold something somewhere. Yes. Well, we don't make any assumption, except that we know that this area has the capacity, because we had already shown in, in the TAC-TAC protocol. So we simply wanted to add whether the acoustic stimulus was treated in the same way, whether those neurons had or not the capacity. Mm -hmm. And the second hypothesis was whether we wanted to test whether it were if that area, the neuron had that capacity, were intermingled, many unimodal, or were bimodal. So the only thing we did was to insert the microelectrodes, we insert the wires in there, leave them to recuperate the tissue, because we believe that we, we perturbate the environment of brain cells. Uh, we let the monkey to do the task, that there is no problem. We don't have any statistical bias. We simply, whatever is there, we pick it, and that's it. Mm -hmm. The only thing we require is that the neurons are there, that we don't lose the cells across trials, um, not to have um, statistical problems. So cells, they have to, to be stable from the beginning up to the end of the test. And that's it. We don't make any assumptions. Mm -hmm. So, of course, we would like to have um, the through populations, but nobody can make it. Mm -hmm. Even the people that um, think that they have uh, massive recordings, EEGs, magnetoencephalographic or fMRI, is, that's not true. This is the way we are running the experiment in 2015, and there is no more, and we have to rely on that. There will be new techniques in the future, which are not available, even calcium signals, because they have to destroy a little bit the brain in very small animals, which I sometimes I think they are not doing what the people claim. And uh, they are sampling only some layers, uh, and that's it. So uh, here is, is what we have, no mm -hmm. more than that. Right. So now traditional approach or, or, or model to think about uh, decision-making is what's called uh, drift diffusion in, in psychology. It has been popular for many years, and now it has been picked up in neuroscience uh, as well. And people are sort of, um, you know, singing that tune uh, quite loudly nowadays that everything is about integration of these kinds of simple signals. So now in your model, you, give, you show that the number of cells that now respond to the decision-making variable is increasing over time in the delay period. So I could say, well, isn't that suggestive of a drift diffusion model? Because now I have just another neuron that must read out this whole population. The more neurons respond to the frequency, the higher the rate it will get and until it reaches its decision threshold, and there we go. Is this how you, how you think about it? No. In fact, I have followed a very different way myself thinking in that, um, having hypothesis, having, um, well, in fact, every time we do a statistic, we, have, we use a model, you know? But I, I'm not married with any model. It's intuitively, it's very nice, the drifting accumulation model, no doubt that. But it's true and it's not true. It depends how you treat it and uh, occur. Accumulation can be done by the population. And in my case, I show that the signals uh, in, uh, is m more represented, the numerosity increases, and the quality too, because it's, it's, it's coming very soon, the right moment in which, it's like when you are, you are running the 100 meters, when you are sitting just to, to listen to the, the ball, the cue signals that trigger the beginning of the 100 meters, your brain brings you, comes to a state in such a way that sensory input treated very differently 
in other situations. Our sensory inputs are not treated in the same way every time. It's exactly the same what happens in this case. It's, it's coming, the second stimulus, and the monkey knows. And in fact, there is a timing signal superimposed on this working memory, and the numerosity. And I want to believe that the number of neurons matters in order to do functions. Mm -hmm. So, um, but still, there must be some thresholding and comparison going on, because yes. all what we look at now is a decision, is there's the neurons in this premotor network that you measure from are saying, yes, the frequency is there that tells me that we should do A, let's say. Uh, I have to move my eyes to the left. So now we have the evidence, but how do we get that then transformed into actually executing that one action? This is what I like to understand. For example, in fact, what another issue, if I can speculate here, because I'm not doing experiment, I'm mm -hmm. simply speaking, is that uh, out of the number of neurons and the coding directly uh, something from brain cells, I would like to understand how subjectivity is emerges from the activity of brain cells. Mm -hmm. I frankly have no idea. I know that it, it emerges, but how is the most difficult problem in science. Mm -hmm. And if we manage once to discover this, that could be probably the most important discovery in, mm -hmm. in science for the rest of the humanity. Right, I agree with you. So, so you, you come out of a, of a tradition um, if you want to the giants of neuroscience, right, Vernon Mountcastle um, as your mentor. Um, also, you've, you've been delving into the brain deeply, and also you have very deep thoughts about the brain. So if we want to follow that tradition, what is uh, Ranulfo's law that we should now spray paint on the wall and sort of imprint in our brains every day in order to understand the brain. I have many mentors. One also could be Wolfram Schultz. In fact, he and I were so young that when we entered into the field, we didn't know, because we didn't know how to study the motor system, we didn't know that we were dealing with reward, which is probably was one of the most important functions of our brain, which is the is a subjectivity, how treat things. I don't think so um, that I, I have a law. I think it's a particular way of treating in doing the way I do science. I'm probably uh, one of the last ones. Is right now science is becoming like uh, industry and uh, bureaucracy dominates politics or something like that. I do not know whether there will be something left by me, but at the moment, I'm quite happy with what I'm doing. My subjectivity is largely recompensated, uh, rewarded by the way I, I do. There might be something which is um, important. I have dealt with two problems. For example, how the physical work is represented in the brain and track the signals to make decisions together with working men or something. And the other one, I want to believe, together with Wolfram Schultz, that we'll deal with something very different, which is very different. It's not a physical parameter. It's something that is generated by brain cells, the reward business. But in spite of that, we were able to decode something. So we're dealing in these two works, the physical representation in brain cells, and the subjectivity represented in the brain. And if you like, that could be my contribution. But I have no big hypothesis yet. Mm -hmm. Okay. So it's like embrace subjectivity. Would that be a good law for Ranulfo? <laughs> or at least respect subjectivity? Of course. Yes. Yes. But now, so the other thing, uh, Tony likes traveling. He's gonna, he wants to go to Mexico City. He's never been there yet. So five years from now, he's going to come to your doorstep with a piece of paper that says, look, five years ago, you made this prediction, and today I want to know whether you actually have falsified this. Being a Popperian, you would like to have it falsified. So what's the one prediction that you would like to commit to to be tested within five, the coming five years? Well, we are dealing with something fundamental to 
and I haven't spoken about it. Um, most of our mental functions depend on attention. And uh, I began doing experiments on this. And it's, it's a big issue. So far, at this moment, there is no, uh, nobody has been able to describe brain circuits associated to attention. And uh, some colleagues of me think that attention is the key to understand consciousness. So I'm designing new experiments in which I think um, I will be able to hit on attentional circuits in the way attention is matters for working memory, attention matters for perception, for subjectivity or something like that. If you like, I have done the first experiment. If I say my first experiment, I started three years ago. So we have a gathered enough data, which is part of um, young people under training. Very young people that I would like to, they have enough time to continue with this tradition. Mm -hmm. So my next thing is to add attention to this. Mm -hmm. All right. So Tony, remember it, attention. All right, Renolfo Romo, thank you so much for this conversation. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. The CSN podcast was produced by the Convergent Science Network of Biomedics and Biohybrid Systems, a project funded by the European 7th Research Framework Programme. For more interviews, recorded lectures, or upcoming conferences in the field of biomimetics and biohybrid systems, go to csnnetwork.eu. And thank you for listening. So, um, um, I made by purpose not to contaminate this, uh, the sensory or the treating of this input, the transformation by the motor side. Yeah. I do believe that there are motor signals coming back into there because, because the somatosensory, there is no other sensory system that is more uh, uh, mixed with the motor yeah. out. On the motor side, you know, the, that somatosensory seems. And we're dealing with the cutaneous modalities. You can deal with the deep yeah. modalities. It's, it's a very complex system, the somatosensory. Well, I think well. you're, you're also you're simplifying it so that you move the spatial component in terms of where about on the yes. skin that happened, whereas S2 maybe is very Something very important that you were not aware of this. The visual system treats the sensory input with the two eyes. There are two sensory inputs. In this case, it's a tiny patch of the skin. So it's allowed you to trace cleanly yeah. the input signal, at least in the, at the entry. And then it's, it's very nice because, and then Cajal developed, I do not agree with, uh, with uh, Gustavo says that the, the neuron doctrine uh, made a lot of damage to know. I think it, you have to uh, to take Cajal uh, message up to a certain point mm -hmm. and, and no more than that and uh, stop that, you know. So Cajal uh, spoke about one of his concepts which is called avalanching conduction. And he uh, thought about how it's possible that a tiny stimulus in the skin that engages few mechanoreceptors produces um, a very weak perceptual process. And he said that he traced one primary afferent that ends in the skin and then the other branch entering the spinal cord. And he said it's like an avalanche, a bold avalanche, a small one, a snowball that is moving mm -hmm. and recluting more and more and more on that. Something happened like that. The entry of that primary after a few primary recludes neurons in the spinal cord, then reclute more neurons in the thalamus, but preserves somatotopy, mm -hmm. and then enters into cerebral cortex and columnar organization you like, proposed by Bernard Mancastle, have divergence. Some other cortical inputs other hemisphere, downstream structures. So there are many players 
uh, from a column in S1 that puts mm -hmm. in motion everything. Mm -hmm. There will be right. a symposium on Mount Castle on November. Ah, really? Memorial. So I have to think about this. That's great. What wow. to say? So I have to talk about models, columns, mm -hmm. about distributed systems, some of the sensory system, mm -hmm. where he laid down some ideas, and what was, what is left from mm -hmm. this, and what was not left. Mm -hmm. I have to be critical. Yes. Mm -hmm. Well, I think not much is left by now, right? I mean, it's sort of. <laughs> People Not like, much. People like these very compressed, simplified models. They, they really start to forget about the complexity. Oh. Yes, but, yeah. uh, but, but if you read carefully uh, his um, chapter in The Mindful Brain, mm -hmm. it, it had an idea, but he was not beyond that because uh, he was uh, scared that everything was wrong, even with myself, because mm -hmm. we designed multiple electro recordings to hit the columns in S1. And very often we had a column and he didn't want to test it. He was scared about mm -hmm. that. And of course, I said, why don't we, oh, you know, the monk is not working very well. I knew quite well that he was confronting something that... Uh, mm -hmm. An idea. Yes. <laughs> and I once I asked him, listen, Bernard, why you never go to, didn't go to secondary somatosensory cortex and reflexively told me, I didn't know how to go. Mm -hmm. And then, and I said, listen, well, listen, Vernon, why don't we go at least to the motor, primary motor cortex? Now that's bullshit. The motor system is, is the worst. And I moved to Mexico in a week and he did some experiments in M1. And he sent me a phone call to tell me, listen, I wasted time in the primary somatosensory <laughs> Now I see neurons associated to decision making. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I went back to him to right. make some, listen, we have to make some control, at least to do some recordings on the muscles. Right. So I did some recordings of the muscles and those were not decision signals, they were associated to more motor responses. They were missing some controls. And in fact, we published those papers, that paper in 1992, that was the last paper in, in cerebral cortex. But uh, that paper can be criticized for many times. <laughs> <laughs> so, Ranulfo, I'm going to bring you to the some I students can go. who want to oh, talk okay. to you about yes, uh, I will attention. Be Please.